Would you stand for the reading of God's word in Psalm 66? It's on page 901 in your pew Bibles and will be on the screen. Shout with joy all the earth. Sing the glory of his name and make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Come and see what God has done. How awesome his works in man's behalf. He turned the sea into dry land, and they passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He's preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke while I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you. An offering of rams I will offer bulls and goats. Come and listen, all who fear God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But the Lord has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Praise be to God who's not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. This is God's word. Please keep your Bibles open to Psalm 66. And I want to thank you, gentlemen, again for embodying what this psalm is talking about, to come and see what God has done. He is a God of salvation. We're going to see that this morning. Let's pray as we uh, open God's word. Lord, our greatest need is to hear from you. And so we pray that that's what would happen right now. As we look into your word, that it would be your voice It would be your spirit giving us ears to hear and hearts and minds to understand that our lives might be changed by you. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've mentioned multiple times before, I grew up in Nebraska, and in growing up in Nebraska, Uh, one of the frequent vacation spots that people head to is the state of Colorado. Uh, We don't have a cape to sneak off to for a weekend. Uh, There are no oceans around for vacationing. You've got to go at least a thousand miles to find one of those. We have a few lakes. They're okay. There are no white mountains, just a couple 
hours away. If you want to see nature and experience it, you've got to buckle in for about a nine-hour drive, and you head east to the Rockies, whether for skiing in the winter or camping and, and hiking in the summer. In fact, oftentimes when I meet somebody, uh, you know, in passing or whatever, and they hear I'm from Nebraska, and they say, oh, I've been to Nebraska, and almost without variation, it's on their way to Colorado. That's, <laughs> that's the destination. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But I remember growing up, and when we would uh, visit Colorado, I remember thinking to myself, I really love coming here, but I don't think I ever want to live here. And, and it's not because of the bitter rivalry that, you know, the Huskers and the Buffaloes had in college and, and, and so on, nor is it because Colorado has produced the likes of our youth pastor and, you know, I didn't know him then. It had nothing to do with my decision. No, I was afraid that if I lived there, that I would eventually take all of the beauty and the majesty of the Rockies for granted. I was afraid of losing my awe. We've all heard the old saying that familiarity breeds contempt, right? The more familiar you are with something, the more exposure or experience you have, the less impressed you become with it over time. It's like when, you're, when you or your parents get into the supper rut where you're either cooking or eating the same five meals over and over and over again. Uh, after a while, you know, what was once a crowd favorite for the kids results in cries of protest and weeping and gnashing of teeth that we're going to eat that again. Um, you know, we've eaten it so often, we're not just used to it, we're sick of it. Uh, for, we have four kids, and for the most part, we can only ever find a meal uh, that three out of the four will like and be happy with. We can never get four for four. But we used to be able to get four for four with tacos. Tacos were like the one go-to. That was the crowd favorite. But I tell you what, you go to that well too often. <laughs> tacos have lost their awe with our kids. They are no longer uh, uh, acceptable. And so, you know, familiarity can breed contempt. And, and, and that's you know, true with food, and it's true with scenery, but those are not and the only, and they're certainly not the most awesome things threatened by familiarity. And when I use the word awesome here, I'm using it in the biblical sense. Uh, you know, what Raudo talked about a few weeks ago, we're not talking about cool or swell or sick, whatever generation you're in, we're talking about awe-inspiring so Grand Canyon, awesome, not look at my cool shoes, awesome, okay? And that's the word that Psalm 66 uses to describe the saving work of God. How awesome are your deeds, verse 3. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of men, verse 5. Those deeds that are specified as God's work of redemption and deliverance. Beholding that saving work of God, whether he's delivering us from from trials or tragedy or from sin and death itself, that is the most majestic, awe-inspiring experience in all of life under heaven. There's nothing more awesome than that. 
But if we're not careful, even a miracle, like God rending the heavens and coming down for the salvation of his people, for the salvation of each one of us, that too can become common, basic, such that we become apathetic about it, we unimpressed or easily distracted. Our hearts become unmoved to praise. The saving work of God can lose its awe as well. And there is nothing more tragic. But of the many things that Psalms, this beautiful, incredible book we've been spending our summer in, of the many things that Psalms helps us with, One is to keep us from losing our awe and depriving God of the praise that he deserves. That's the point of our psalm this morning in Psalm 66. If you look at the psalm itself, it's divided into two sections. It starts with a global invitation to praise in verses 1 through 12, followed by a personal expression of praise. In verses 13 to 20. And that first part in verses 1 to 12. uh, It can be divided up even further into three kind of stanzas or sections. And each of those begins with this invitation or this command to praise God. So look at verse 1. Shout for joy. And then verse 5. Come and see. And verse 8. Bless our God. So each section starts with this command to praise God, but it's not just Israel who's being invited to or instructed to praise God. Everyone is commanded to offer God this praise. All peoples are called to worship the God of Israel. Shout for joy, all the earth. Come and see God's deeds toward the children of men, toward humans. Bless our God, O peoples. So this is a a global invitation to praise the God of Israel and to praise him because of his saving work. When he gives the reasons, we're going to look at this, when he gives the reasons to praise, it's because of the awesome deeds God has done. When he delivered Israel, bringing them through the Red Sea and across the Jordan in verses 6 to 7, or preserving them and bringing them safely into the abundance of the promised land, verses 9 to 12. This global invitation to praise inspired by God's saving work. But then you get to the second part, verses 13 to 20, and that, that global scope narrows down to the personal uh, worship of a single individual. Notice there's a, there's a shift from us and we to I and my. It gets personal here in 13. As the psalmist offers, uh, presents offerings to God and gives testimony to God's work. But here, even the offering and the testimony, that too is driven as a response to the saving work of God. Look at the connection or the the parallel between verse 5. Come and see what God has done. And verse 16. Come and hear and I will tell you what God has done. The God of salvation is worthy of praise. He is worthy of our praise. And this psalm 
encourages us to do that and guards our hearts against losing that awe over his saving work. And he does so by encouraging us to do four things. To rejoice over God's salvation in praise. We see that happening here. To rehearse God's saving work in worship. To respond to God's salvation with worship. And to report God's saving work through testimony. And we're going to look at those four things. Four habits of Christian life that keep us from losing our awe and taking God's saving work for granted. Becoming numb to it. And, and this is an invitation to all people. It's not just to Christians. It's not just to those who, who have a personal relationship with God. Everyone is called to offer God this praise because he's worthy of the praise of all peoples. So number one, Rejoice over God's salvation in praise. One of the simplest and most important ways to not lose our awe over God's saving work is to regularly acknowledge it, acknowledge His majesty and His worthiness in praise. That's what verses 1 through 4 invite us to do. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Now you look at that praise. Who is the object of focus in these verses? What's the center of attention? It's not us. It is God. Praise fixes our attention on God. You know, we can come into church thinking about us and all of the different things on our plates and going on, and then you're singing these songs, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking about something different. I'm thinking about God. Praise fixes our attention on God. And that's critical because one of the easiest ways to lose our awe is to allow our focus to be on something other than God, usually on ourselves. Uh, we are, are selfish creatures by nature. If you've ever you know, come across a, uh, a group photo that you're in, we have those Sandy Island photos that David takes every year, and you see them in the hallways. And if you're in that photo, who's the first person you look for in the photo? Yourself, right? We just we gravitate towards ourselves, or we just had some family pictures taken back in Nebraska, you know. And you have twenty different shots of the same pose. And how do you evaluate which one is the best? Which one should be used? How I look in each frame, like that's just how we work, right? We are selfish by nature, at least by fallen nature. We tend to focus on ourselves, and so rejoicing over God's salvation in praise, gathering to sing his praises regularly, that reorients us to the true center of the universe. Uh, I mean, you think of the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's what that commandment was about, to set apart one day for worship and rest. Why? Because 
when you orient your entire week around the gathered worship of God, it is a regular reminder that you're not the center of the universe. God is, and everything revolves around him. So we fix our hearts. We rejoice over God's salvation in praise. It's one of the ways that we keep uh, from losing our awe. Number two, we rehearse God's saving work in worship. We rehearse God's saving work in worship, verses 5 to 12. When we gather to praise God for who he is and what he's done, we're not just being reminded that he's the center. We're also reminding ourselves of what he's done to be so worthy, what he's done to accomplish salvation for his people. And again, this is critical because we are prone to forget. I mean, I often forget where I left my keys, let alone remembering what God has done so long ago to accomplish salvation for his people. There are there's so many things that are fighting for our attention today. I mean, your phone buzzes in your leg over some news headline that you really don't necessarily need to know anything about. But, but from news to marketing to, to just the responsibilities that each of us have for different parts of life, there's so much that calls for our attention. It's so easy to forget what's most important. It's so easy to forget what God has done. I mean, that was, that was one of the biggest things that God warned Israel against as they were preparing to enter into the promised land. In the book of Deuteronomy, they're right, you know, on the threshold. And Moses takes them back over the law again and reminds them. And multiple times throughout the book, there's this warning, do not forget what God has done to save you. When you get there, don't forget who got you there. Because we're prone to forget. Gathered worship helps us remember. It helps us remember. And if we're new to these things, to the things of Christianity, to the things of faith, it helps us to learn what God has done as well. Because gathered worship is designed to rehearse or retell the story of God's saving work. To go over once again the good news of Jesus Christ through the liturgy, through the prayers, through the songs, through the sermon. We rehearse the story of God's salvation and worship. And you can see that in verses 5 to 7. Israel's worship is expressed by retelling the story of the Exodus and the conquest, right? Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of men. Well, well, what deeds are you talking about? He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Probably the Jordan River, Joshua 3. They worship God by retelling the story of their salvation. And then notice what the psalmist says next. He says, there did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, who whose eyes keep watch on the nations. So so not only does rehearsing the story help them remember, but there's this sense in which retelling God's saving work brings us back to that moment in worship. There did we rejoice in him. When, When Israel sang the songs and celebrated the feasts, it's as if they're 
back there. And you think about it, that's not unlike what we experience through the Lord's table, through communion. It brings us back to the cross where Christ accomplished once for all his saving work for his people. Or, or even a, how we sing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? There's this sense in which worship transcends time. It connects us to the saving work of God. And that keeps us from forgetting. Rehearsing the story keeps us from forgetting. It also, rehearsing the story, also helps us guard against the assumption that being saved by God means life isn't going to be difficult anymore. That's a really easy assumption to, to fall into. That if I give my life to God, that life is going to be easier from now on. And when it isn't, or when trial comes, or when suffering endures and it just doesn't go away, then, then I become disenchanted with God as though he's now let me down. But notice how Israel's worship in verses 8 to 12, it doesn't just rehearse the moments of bliss in God's saving work. You know, that day when the chains fell off and when the enemies were overcome, it retraces the hard road of suffering and trial through which God led his people in order to refine them. Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. But our feet almost slipped. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver has tried. How is silver tried? With fire. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet, you have brought us out to a place of abundance. The saving work of God does not mean we will not experience hardship or trial. It means that hardship and trial don't get the last word. And by retelling that story, the story of God's salvation of his people, uh, ancient Israel, the story of God's salvation for all his people through Christ, the story of my own salvation. We remember what God has done and it keeps us from slipping into that assumption and despising God when our expectations of his deliverance go unmet. Moreover, it gives us hope that if God is our Savior, then no matter how bad it might get, we know that this will end well. We know. Victory, restoration, new creation, that's the final word. That's the word we're waiting for. God was faithful to do it for Israel. He was faithful for Christ. He did not leave his son in the grave. He will be faithful to us as well. And so rehearse God's salvation in worship. The third habit that we see here to keep us from losing our awe is responding to God's salvation with worship. So not just singing his praise or telling the story, but reacting when we experience his saving work firsthand, responding with worship to God's salvation, whether that's being delivered from 
uh, an adversary or enemy, whether it's being reconciled with someone or being freed from, uh, from sin, from addiction, from slavery to sin, or being forgiven of our sins for the very first time through faith in Jesus. Whatever experience of salvation you have, whatever way God's saving work touches your life, respond to that with worship. Respond personally. And that's what we see now as we enter the second part of the psalm, verse 13. This is where it gets more personal. So it's not just this invitation to everyone come worship God. Now it is an expression where the psalmist himself offers his worship to God in response to the saving work he's experienced. Verse 13. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. When you experience God's salvation personally, respond to him with worship. Sometimes we think, that God's salvation is, is mainly just about getting out of a sticky situation. You know, we, we, we find ourselves in trouble and we need a way out. And, and so often, that's exactly what God uses to get us to finally talk to him. I mean, the old cliche, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? You know, when, when you are locked in a violent, bloody battle and death is pretty much imminent, everyone's crying out to God whether they believe in him or not. And, and sometimes when we find ourselves in that trouble and we, we get to the point where we cry out to God for help, we, we sometimes make promises to him as if to kind of entice him to work. You know, Lord, if you get me out of this, uh, this exam that I forgot to study for or this bill that I can't pay or this disease that's beating me down and eating me alive. Lord, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll go to church. I promise I'll, I'll give to the poor. I promise I'll quit smoking. I'll, you know, whatever. We make these promises in our desperation looking to God for help. But then when God answers, what so often happens once we're out of the sticky situation, we go back to life as normal. We forget to keep the promises or pay the vows because our goal was not to get God. Our goal was to use God to get out of trouble. But responding to God's deliverance, when we experience it personally, with worship, keeps us from letting the miracle of salvation become a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. The God of salvation is worthy of praise. And so when he answers your cry for help, come before him with thanksgiving. Don't squander that. Bring your offerings before him. Not, you know, not bulls and goats. That's not how we offer worship to God anymore. Now that Christ has come, he's the final sacrifice. That's been paid in full. We've no, we don't worship him with animal sacrifices. The, the sacrifices we bring to God is our whole lives. That's what we offer before the Lord. Fulfill the vow you made when you were in trouble. 
Not because you have to pay God back, but in gratitude, in humility, in love. Respond to God's salvation personally with worship. And then finally, report God's salvation through testimony. Report God's salvation through testimony. If we are to guard against losing our awe, if we are to give God the praise and the glory that He deserves, the fourth habit is to bear witness to His saving work, to tell others about it, to report what He has done, to give a a testimony. That's what we see in verses 16 to 20. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So report God's saving work through testimony. That's what we've experienced this morning, right? With these gentlemen giving voice to how God has acted in their lives to save. And when you hear that kind of testimony, it's really hard for your heart to be unmoved to praise, right? God is at work. Uh, This is what we do when we celebrate baptisms. We give testimony to how God has changed our lives or when we have testimonies during our gathered worship. It's it's what we do uh, when we give an update to a prayer request. And we ask for prayer. And then later we report, here's how God answered it. We're giving praise to God. We're bearing witness to God's work. It's what happens in casual conversations uh, within Christian fellowship, we, we tell each other, we bear witness to what God has done for our souls. And it's what we do when we talk to non-believers about how God has changed our lives. We call that sharing our testimony, right? We bear witness to how God has changed our lives. Let me tell you what difference Jesus has made in my life. Because the reality is every single one of us has a story right? Every one of us. Maybe we don't understand how our story fits into, uh, or how God fits into our story yet. Maybe we're, we're wrestling with that, or we're confused, or we're suspicious, or, or we're hurt. Um, maybe we have recently come to, to realize that the question isn't how God fits into my story, but how do I fit into his story? He's the king. He's the center of the universe, and I'm trying to make sense of that. Maybe ours is a story of miraculous deliverance, of God opening the heavens and coming down to rescue us out of the utter depths. Maybe ours is a story of long-suffering hope, crying out year after year after year and waiting on the Lord to answer. If you are a Christian, then all of our stories are about how we were once blind, but now we see. 
They're stories of amazing grace, that undeserved favor of God. And our stories don't end when we become a Christian. I mean, that is a beautiful, monumental moment in our lives. When we go from death to life, when our eyes are open and we rightly celebrate that and share it with others. But that's like the wedding day. And there's a whole marriage that comes after the wedding of walking with Jesus daily. And, you know, marriages can be rocky, right? Same is true with following Jesus. Not because of Jesus. He's pretty solid. We happen to be the one-sided problem in that scenario. And, and yet, even in the midst of the struggle to just put one foot in front of the other following Christ, our God is a God who saves. His salvation is past, present, and future. He saved us when he opened our eyes and we began a relationship with him. He's saving us presently through sanctifying, through changing our hearts. And he will save us in the end when Christ returns and the the resurrection of the dead, when we will finally bear his image perfectly and sin will forever be shut out. So God is a God who saves. And that's not just a past thing. It's a present thing and it's a future thing. And in the present, he gives us the strength of his spirit to carry on. To put one foot in front of the other, resting in his grace. I mean, that is so much of my story. Of asking God for grace for each day. And marveling at his kindness in providing it. And at his patience and mercy when I squander it. That's the kind of God he is. One of the lessons that he, I feel like he's been teaching me forever, but he's teaching me right now is that even when I feel insufficient, inadequate, insecure, that his love is still enough. It's always enough and that I can rest in that love daily. That's what he's doing for my soul. And none of our stories are done. It might feel that way sometimes. We might go through seasons where we feel like we just haven't seen God act. We haven't seen him do anything. But hearing the stories of others, it's not just bearing witness to how God's worked in your life, but hearing the stories of others reminds us that God is still at work. He's still saving people and changing lives. And so if you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, but you you find yourself at that place where the saving work of God has become unimpressive, you feel yourself losing your awe, then rejoice over God's salvation in praise Rehearse God's salvation in worship. Respond to his saving work with worship. And report it. Tell others through testimony. The God of salvation is worthy of universal praise. If you're not a Christian, um, then I invite you to reflect on what you've heard and what you've seen this morning. 
the story of God, the story of these men, the testimony of God's salvation. Because God is worthy of your praise too. Worthy of your praise and your trust. And so reflect on what you've seen and what you've heard. And I encourage you to repent. To turn away from sin and rebellion. From from doing it your way and doing it on your own. And open your heart to the God who made you. The God who loves you. The God who wants you. And the only God who can save you. As the psalmist says in verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity or sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I cannot be devoted to sin and devoted to God at the same time. One of them must give way. And so let sin give way. And put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Christ who loved us while we were still sinners. He wasn't sitting in heaven tapping his foot waiting for us to get our act together before he would do something to rescue us. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ laid down his life to rescue ours. Dying the death that we deserved for our sin and rising from the dead to give new life to everyone who believes. As the apostles bore witness in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so turn to Christ. Trust in Christ and join the psalmist in saying, Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Let's pray. Blessed be God, for you, Lord, have not rejected our prayers or removed your steadfast love from us. Lord, we see that when we look back on the cross, how you gave everything to make us your own. We see it in the the thousand subtle ways that you care for us daily. We see it in the miraculous redemptions and in the slow plodding and progress. You are a God of salvation and you are worthy of our praise. And so, Lord, we give it to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.